I'll tell you what, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn to Genesis 12. Because we've, we've gone over this Ephesians section a lot. In fact, this is the sixth sermon in the series of God's plan for the ages. And the reason is because of the content in Ephesians 3, 1 and 2. So if you want to look up, you can see it. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. A Gentile is anyone who is not a Jew. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation, remember what revelation means. It means the fact that the Holy Spirit has brought about what God wants to be known to someone and ultimately inspires them, in, in the doctrine of inspiration we would call it, in order to write down what God would have us to say. And this is the reason why we all hold in our hands a book that has not been proven wrong. No one has found a loophole. No one has found a fault. This is the inerrant Word of God, and it's important that we take it so. So that it was revealed to Paul, there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. What is a mystery? A mystery is something that has always been true, has been previously concealed, but it, God's desire is now being revealed. By referring to this, you can read Sorry, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations, that is the past time, in other generations, was not made known to the sons of men as it has, check it out, now, present, very important for us to understand, this thing, has been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Down to verse 11 and 12, this is in accordance with the eternal purpose. God has an eternal purpose and what he's doing, and he carries it out in Christ. Remember this, all of the Old Testament is preparatory for the Messiah. Jesus comes, lives an earthly life, dies a criminal's death, is buried in a tomb, rises from the dead, and ascends after 40 days, and promises that he is going to come back. With that being said, the Gospel sections are really the pinnacle of what we would need to understand about Jesus on earth. Everything after that is explanatory of him with revelation capping it off showing the ultimate fulfillment in real time future of how that's going to look. So in Christ Jesus, he is the pinnacle of all of this eternal purpose that God is looking to do. In Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith. So let's go through this real quick so that we've got it. We've kind of nailed this down. You'll see it's at the top of the little page you have. A dispensation, or it's sometimes called an administration, or stewardship, it means house rule. It's a period of time during which God is testing man's ability to govern the earth. The whole world is God's and the fullness thereof. But Him being the creator of it, He desires to entrust it to us. How will we do in relation to God's requirements? That's not any different from how a family structure is set up. That's not any different from how an employer situation stands up. There's always the idea of a management of somebody else's stuff and a testing of how you're going to do. Anybody felt the pressure of that lately, maybe in just daily life? Sometimes I feel like I'm living a life with a box of crayons. It's terrible. Oh, sorry. Go back here. 
Notice that there are four points that make up a dispensation. And this pattern is consistent. In fact, it's how we know to identify a dispensation. I'm going to show you why this pattern is biblical and true today in relation to Israel. Number one, there's a responsibility. Here's the authority given to you. Number two, there's always a failure. Why? Because that's what we do best. We are great at failing. We are great at getting it wrong. Anytime that we've ever stood up and talked about what an expert I am in this situation, get ready to hit the pavement. Pride comes before the fall. Anytime we think we have a corner on the market of truth, it's always going to come out from underneath us. Let me give you an example. Have you ever been adamantly studying something in the Bible and all of a sudden you took a step back and you go, good grief, I don't know nothing about nothing. Anybody ever done that? Yeah. You ever come in, you think you got a situation nailed down, and then all of a sudden, some person, who is this person, that comes in out of nowhere and pulls a rug right out from under you. This situation was going up and it went south quickly. Failing is what we do. Now don't let that get discouraging to you. Jesus loves failures. He loves us with all of his heart and all of his life. When that comes about, there's a necessary judgment. Why? Because God has a standard of justice. We wouldn't know what justice and righteousness is had God not set the standard for us. But the wonderful thing about that, the wonderful thing that God offers to every failure, and trust me, He's offered it to me in spades, is grace. God will still condescend Himself and meet us where we are and take us beyond where we would ever deserve to go simply because His love motivates Him to do so. In every dispensation we see this take place. Now let's recap real briefly last week because what I talked about last week plugs into this week. And this week was actually last week's sermon too. So this is kind of part 5B. I don't know. Figure that out later. Go with me here. In Genesis 10 and 1 Chronicles 1, it says the same thing. Two sons were born to Eber. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. How should we understand this? This is what happened at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. If you look at Deuteronomy 32, there is a song that Moses teaches the children of Israel so that when they fail, they will more quickly come to their senses and repent in that situation. See, God is really not expecting perfection in this situation. What He does ask is that we trust Him. And where we always fail is in the matter of trust. God has not asked us to do backward somersaults. He's not asked us to win American Ninja Warrior. He's not asking us to do any of that stuff. What He's asking us to do is one thing. Will you trust me in this situation? Will you trust me for today? Will you trust me in this moment? While you're pulling your hair out, will you stop for a moment and trust me? That's what He asks. How often it is that that will elude us in situations? Notice the underlying portions. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, the nations, Gentiles, when He separated the sons of man, He set boundaries of the peoples. All that was done emphatically by language. So everybody had to go with who they could understand. According to the number of the sons of Israel. And this is our problem situation here as far as the NASB is concerned. We'll talk about that in a moment. But notice what it says. For Yahweh's portion is His people. Jacob is the allotment of His inheritance. Now remember something about the reason why we need to 
research this just a little bit more. When the Tower of Babel incident happened, the Israelites were not a people. Jews were not a thing. Everybody was a Gentile at that point. It wasn't until that was all split off and then God decided to do something special in calling a man Abram from over in the region of Babylon to go to a land that he'd never seen, never been to, and God's talking to him that he's never trusted. So it's a whole brand new, different, almost sideways thing. We would never trust a deal like that, I don't think. And I think we would be worse off as the church because we do know the Lord. And yet he offers us wonderful trust experiences we don't take advantage of. So why is this such a big deal? Well, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were able to actually find older manuscripts that captured this better. And some of the more recent translations have latched onto this and let it affect their translation of the Old Testament. So we see if you carry an ESV. My wife's a big ESV fan. Good translation. Great. Fantastic. Look what it says. The sons of God. The Nep Bible. Been reading that lately. It's a lot of fun. The Heavenly Assembly. The New Living Translation. Don't recommend it, but still love you. Okay? The number in his heavenly court. The Lexham English Bible. Nobody's ever heard of that, but it's a more recent translation, and it's a good word-for-word translation. The sons of God. He assigned to each nation the heavenly being. Good news translation. That's the eyebrows-only translation in those pictures. You guys know what I'm talking about. Revised Standard. And also the New American, which is actually the Catholic translation. Notice this. Sons of God? Sons of God? Yes, not the New American Standard. The New American Bible. The NAB is not the NASB. Two different things, okay? Just making sure we know that. So it's actually the Catholic translation. So notice, sons of God, sons of God, sons of God, sons of God. He assigned to each nation a heavenly being, the number of his heavenly court, and dealing with the number of his heavenly assembly. How this text should actually probably read here is according to the number of the sons of God. And the sons of God are angelic beings of some form of which at the moment of the Tower of Babel, God decided he was going to do something brand new, and he was going to give these angelic beings charge over the nations of the world. That matters because the Lord's portion is Jacob. It is Israel. It is especially called people. Why does he single them out out of everybody else? Nothing of them, everything of his grace and mercy in the situation, and as a reflection of what he can do with a nothing nation when all the rest of the angelic beings of which he created have charge of nations that were already getting established and going grouping together by their languages so that he could demonstrate the links of his power now how do we get into this well this is the fourth dispensation where did that come from i can't erase it creepy okay this is the dispensation of promise the fourth dispensation This is a responsibility. Watch what happens. Genesis chapter 12, if you're not already there. Genesis chapter 12. Look at verses 1 through 3. Why is this line still here? I am plagued. Good grief. Pay no mind to the line on the page. Um, Watch this. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your country. Now, this was known as Ur. Of course it goes away. But it's also what we understand is Babylon. Now remember, Babylon has a lot of baggage. Everybody remember we talked about Nimrod. We talked about all the mess that he was involved in. We we talked about how he exalted himself 
as someone who was absolutely against the face of God and actually was the, the spearhead behind encouraging the building of the Tower of Babel in order to try to thwart God's purposes. It was almost like a vengeance that he wanted to take against the Creator. So he comes forth out of this incredibly idolatrous, rebellious, and demonically controlled country. Notice, out from your relatives. Mom and dad can't go from your father's house to the land. This is important. The land that I will show you. Now watch this. I will make you a great nation. Anytime that you're reading through and you're going to see a translation, usually in the Old Testament, especially the first five books, and you're dealing with the concept of descendants, especially in Genesis. The literal translation of that is your seed, your offspring is the idea. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. So you shall be a blessing. Now notice, we back up just a second. Uh, Let's see here. God will show him the land. I, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. This is all going to be God's doing. Now, trivia question. What is Abram's responsibility here? I just told you five minutes ago. Trust. Who said it? Corey. Cheeseburger. It's good. Trust. Trust. That's all he's asking. He approaches Abram in this situation, calls him to this, just trust me. Okay? Now this sounds like pretty good stuff. You're going to have land. You're going to have offspring. Abram was kind of up there. Okay? But look what it also says. You're not just going to be blessed. You're going to be a blessing. Notice. Take this very seriously. Watch this. This will dictate your political process come election time. Watch this. Okay, here we go. Here it is. I will bless those who bless you. And the one, and I think it's really interesting how that's singled out. The one who curses you. The one, in fact, the word curse here and the word curse here are two different words. Let me give them to you real quick. The first one is kalal. It means to belittle or to treat lightly. Not take the situation seriously. Ah, yeah, they're doing whatever. It's almost like a dismissive, passive kind of thing. Okay? But what's interesting is the one who belittles and dismisses you, he says here, this next one is aor, and it's the idea of I will ban you, I will curse you, I will bind you under a curse. Let me say it this way. To treat Israel lightly is to mess with God and ask for His wrathful hand against you. Period. Some people think it's weird that we have an Israel flag up here, the, the Israeli flag. I don't think it's weird at all. I think it's incredibly biblical. Now, we suffer today from something that's been called, and this is a bonus, you can tip me later, okay? This is called supersessionism. That's, that's the big Jeopardy word for it. What it's also known as is replacement theology. And it's this teaching that came about around the 350s, 400s. It didn't come about until the Nicene Creed was put together in church history. And in doing so, there was a declaration that there is no literal 1,000-year reign of Christ that's going to take place. Because what had happened is at the cross, Jesus had somehow assumed the throne, and He was spiritually reigning, and He has been reigning since His death on the cross in a spiritual form. We're just not really seeing it right now. 
But the idea is, is that Israel has been put away from God. Not on the back burner of history, not set to the side for just a time period. He's actually put them away. And now the church is spiritually, careful, spiritually going to fulfill all of the promises that God ever made to Israel. Now the church has assumed all those blessings. It's called replacement theology. What I think is interesting here is I find that to be heretical. Because God has promised great things upon His people. And if God fails in relationship to Israel, you cannot trust Him. So if you want to have your finger to the wind on prophecy, you pay attention to Israel. You pay attention to what's going on with the Jews. Does this mean we condone everything that they do? No. God didn't condone everything they did. In fact, He left enough room in this covenant that we're going to see to where He could spank them when He needed to and yet still remain true to His promises. Why? Because they're all based on Him. But watch this because notice that this pertains to Gentiles. This is important. If you bless Israel, guess what? They are the conduit of blessing to all the nations. In fact, God's loving care, restoration, and eventual exaltation of them serves as a prototype of what it's going to look like for all of us in our nations. Read Zechariah 14. You find some crazy things about the nations there. Jesus Christ ruling on the throne and those nations deciding whether or not they want to come and worship Him. Read that. That's really interesting, the way that it winds down. Notice what He says, In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. These are fantastic. So let's sum them up kind of briefly here. Notice that we deal with the idea of land. Remember, the idea of dispensations is kingdom-oriented. God is setting out to exercise His rule, but He desires to share His rule with others. All the nations have to do is trust Him, and they will be blessed and put into those positions. Now watch this. Land, uh, again, you feel free to look this up later. You can check this out. We're going to talk about it here in just a second, why it's important. So the idea of land, you've got to have real estate. What does Lucy want for Christmas, really? Real estate. Notice some of you get that later. Seed, what is this? Offspring. Why? Because there are no other Jews. It's Abram and Sarai. That's it. And that's who God starts with. He starts with two senior citizens in order to make the centralized nation of the world. Some of you guys have already cashed out. It's like, I'm watching, you know, Will of Fortune the rest of my day. Don't. The Lord still wants to use you. Okay. Making sure here, blessing. Why is that? Because number one, Jesus was a Jew. Number two, he's of the royal line of David. We'll touch on that in a little while uh, next time. Number three, Jesus Christ has paid the sin debt of the world. Every single person can come to Him. It's not a problem. How do we know that? John chapter 12, verse 32, When I am lifted up, and He said this about what manner He would die, I will draw all men unto Myself. The Holy Spirit is right now throughout the world convicting it of sin, righteousness, and judgment. God's desire is for all people to be saved, but He does not make anyone believe. They're personally responsible of how they handle the gospel. Now watch this. Israel's existence and the response of the nations 
to her is a requirement set forth by Yahweh. That is the requirement. This is a worldwide responsibility with eternal consequences. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, this is not the greatest picture in the world. Forgive it. But it's the best I could find to get the land of how we need. Okay? This isn't even all of the land that they've been promised. They've been promised from the Nile River all the way over to the river Euphrates. They've never occupied that land. They only have a bacon strip along the Mediterranean Sea. Anybody think that's a kosher joke? Just kidding. Okay, moving on. Now, let me give you some, some background on this just a little bit. I would highly recommend this book. Oh, my gosh, here he goes recommending books. Yes, but it's only six bucks. Okay? Buy a used copy. It's called The Mountains of Israel, The Bible, and the West Bank. This is a fantastic read. It's got pictures. I know. Even Jay can read it. We're good. Okay? It's going to be good. Let me read you this a little bit. Or let, let me just share this with you. 1948, after World War II, it came down a situation where Jews were beginning to flood back to the land. And it was the phone call of Harry S. Truman, because he was a Bible reader, who actually said, yes, we need to declare Israel to be a nation. But here's what you find, okay? Notice that if this is Israel, you head down here, Egypt. You have up at the top above them, Lebanon. You have over here on this side, Jordan. Syria. Over here, Iraq. You also have spell it. Saudi Arabia. Okay? You're not seeing it up there? Looks like somebody's signature from a painting. That's thank you, third grade. All right. Um Muslims. In fact, as soon as they were declared a nation, what happened? Am I know? They were attacked. All six of these other people groups came in on them in order to overtake them. Guess what? They still stood. Why is that? God has a promise. God made a covenant. God made a contract with Israel saying, I will do this. I will take care of you. In my time, it will be done. Now, somewhere between 120 and 130 A.D., the Israelites were completely dispersed all over. Why were they dispersed? They were dispersed because it was God's judgment against them of how He told them way back in Deuteronomy how He would discipline them would they not trust Him, would they not live according to His rules and statutes. And so He fulfills His promise and He does that. So in 1948, for a nation to be off the scene for about 1,800 years and for Him to bring them back into existence, this was a real definite mark against the world. And what have they just got done suffering? The Holocaust. It's a big deal. Now here's what's interesting about this. You then move into the war known as the Six Days War. This was 1967. Okay? Six Days War. And here's the reason why this was so important. is because up until that time, they didn't really have much of this area here. Does anybody know what this is called? 
Least we're not for food. What? We're not a tongue-speaking church. What was it? Somebody say it out loud. What is it? Not the Golan Heights. You're close. The West Bank. This is what's commonly known as the West Bank. In the book of Ezekiel, it's called the Mountains of Israel. That's what it's called. And what this region actually encompasses is the region of Samaria and Jerusalem down here. Before that, they did not have control of Jerusalem. 1967, a six days war was launched against them. In doing so, they, they gained this back. Now this is crucial because, here's a reason why, the center of the world is Jerusalem. The center of the earth is Jerusalem. And the very center of that center of the earth is actually the Holy of Holies of the temple where the Lord Jesus Himself is going to sit when He comes back in triumph and builds His own kingdom and does that. That is the middle point place. Period. I'm all for America. Okay? Yay. America's going down. Everybody understand this. I know that's not optimistic. We are not in Scripture. We are not in prophecy. So recognize this. What is our job? Trust the Lord and what He's already said about this. Trust the Lord in His prophetic plan. Period. How do we get this? It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Here's what's interesting about this is they capture this area. Jerusalem, Samaria, the Golan Heights, the Gaza Strip, and way down here, the Sinai Peninsula. They gain it all back. Now, let me tell you how friendly everybody is about this situation. President Abdel Ramah Arif of Iraq on May 31st of 1967 says, the existence of Israel is an error which must be rectified. This is our opportunity to wipe out that ignominy which has been with us since 1948. Our goal is clear, to wipe Israel off the map. Next quote, November 12th, 1973. This is President Muammar Gaddafi of Libya. He says the battle with Israel must be such that after it, Israel will cease to exist. 1986, Bassam Abdu Sharif. He is a top Arafat aide and a Palestinian Liberation Organization spokesman. He said on May 31st, the struggle with the Zionist enemy is not a struggle about Israel's border, but about Israel's existence. Now I think one thing that needs to be very clear is number one, have mercy on those of Muslim belief. Why? Because they've never even had a Bible in their hands. Nobody has ever talked to them about Jesus Christ. They have no avenue for receiving the gospel as it is. And this is what makes missionary work to Muslims so, so important. They have a hatred that is unfounded and that is ancient because it's been cultivated in them. Another interesting thing about this book is it also documents what some of their school curriculum teaches them about Israel. You're creating haters from fifth grade. It's insane. They've never had exposure to this stuff. What does God say? Abram, go to a place. I'm going to give you land, seed, and a blessing. Through you, all the world's going to be blessed. But I guarantee you this. Those who bless you, I will bless them. That's the requirement. But if they curse you, it will not be a light thing. A six days war, and Israel was able to recapture their capital. 
and was able to even expand into Gaza and the Golan Heights and even get the Sinai Peninsula back. That is the hand of God. It is the hand of God that sustains them in His time right now. Now here's one thing that's very, very important. Disobedience on the part of Abraham and his family has no bearing whatsoever on the unconditional promises of Yahweh in this covenant. None. Abraham could mess up royally and totally. In fact, he kind of did, didn't he? You know, we're waiting around for this kid. God, where are you? I promise I'm going to give it to you. Well, Hagar's looking okay. Let's get this thing on the road. Is that trusting the Lord? No. It's taking matters into your own hands and saying, I'm not trusting the Lord. We're going to get it done. That's a problem. What do we have from that situation? Ishmael. In fact, he's intimately connected with everyone who is now Israel's enemies. Amazing what that lapse in faith has created for this time. Watch this. He said, in verse seven, uh, chapter 17, he says, I've made you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. Now, it made you exceedingly fruitful. This thing hasn't really happened yet. But notice he's basing that off the fact of his promise. He says here, kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for, and pay attention guys, everlasting covenant never goes away it always is true always to be Elohim to you and to your descendants generational regardless of how you mess up sin despise me walk away it doesn't matter God promised it it will happen it is an unconditional promise that God makes he says in verse 8 I will give to you and your descendants land of your sojournings. Who does Israel belong to? It belongs to the Jews. It doesn't need a Palestinian state. That's not God's plan, but that's correct foreign policy. God doesn't care. God has made a very emphatic point in His Word, and He is to be trusted. That's all He asks, is trust. That's it. Notice, He says here, all the land of Canaan, just in case we weren't for sure what that was. It's supposed to all be His. And here He brings it up again. An everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Now, knowing that this went on, we don't really get much information about Isaac as opposed to Jacob in the Bible, in Genesis. But here's what He says to Isaac. Sojourn in this land. And I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants, offspring, seed, I will give all of these lands. And I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and will give your descendants all these lands and all the nation, and your descendants and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Seems pretty clear to me. He reiterates it over and over and over. Now, where is the failure? Here's the failure. Turn to Exodus 1. Can you imagine if I would have preached this last week too? Everybody needs to have six-hour church once in a while. It'd be good. All right. Exodus chapter 1. 
So we have, so some of us might not know this, and it's okay if you don't. We have Abraham. Abraham had Isaac. That's the child of promise. Isaac had Jacob. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number. 70. 70 people come from that land, migrate into Egypt, because Joseph, who was one of Jacob's sons, had been brought into a position of incredible blessing in that time, of which he was able to help save a lot of the nations because of his frugalness and forward thinking and the revelation of God given to him. It says here, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died, and all of his brothers and all of that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land, the land of Egypt where they had traveled, was filled with them. Now, a king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. History had not been passed on. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. The king is threatened. Come, let us deal wisely, word could also be translated shrewdly, with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with, sorry, hard label, not the hard label, okay? Hard labor, and they typo. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more that they afflicted them, the more that they cursed them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. What God is able to do. Watch this. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and and all kinds of labor in the field and their labors which they rigorously imposed upon them. Now, everybody look at verse 15 through 21. I'm going to read it quickly because I want you to see the idea of what it is for somebody to make a choice correctly according to the covenant that God had made with Abraham and to be immediately blessed by God because of it. Look what it says. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. One of them was named Shifra, and the other's name was Pua. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives, what? Right? Bang, bang. That's it. That's the idea. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing? And let the boys live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. Good googly moogly. Wow. You learn something new in Scripture every day, don't you? Woo! Single guys. Get you a Jewish girl. All right, moving on. Notice it says here, So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Doesn't matter what you do. God keeps blessing. God keeps blessing. Because the midwives feared God, He established households for them. He brought them prosperity. If we would just fear Him above all other powers, authorities, entities, do what God asks. Trust Him. He blesses immensely. It says here, verse 22, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, 
saying, every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. And this is how the Moses situation comes about. What is the judgment that happens because of this? We've gone through this before in foundational framework, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But here's an interesting chart. When, when Yahweh began bringing plagues through Moses on the land of Egypt because of their unbelief, this is what he did. Water to blood, frogs, gnats, flies, herds and flocks die, painful boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and the death of the firstborn. Now before we get all like, well, why in the world would he do this? That seems so cruel of him. Read the Scripture. Read about Pharaoh. The hardness of his heart. The hatred of God. At one time when Moses actually comes to him for the first time, he says, who is this God that I should listen to? Him? Who is this guy? Now one of the great problems with that is because Pharaoh was considered a God amongst his people. But what's interesting is, he was one of many gods. So in this situation, you see that each time there was a plague that was enacted by God, it was actually against the powers of the false gods that were over them. Now, again, the nations have spirit beings that oversee them, demonically control them and try to influence them in a lot of situations. And this is just probably a subsect of the platoon that was assigned to Egypt with their chief god probably being Ra or what's later known as Amun-Re or Osiris. Those were pretty big gods at that time for them. Uh, but notice at the bottom, even Pharaoh was considered a god as well. Look at chapter 12 of Exodus. This is the judgment that he brings. Chapter 12, because even God brings this up here. When he's speaking about the death of the firstborn, chapter 12, verse 12, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the, what does it say? All the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. All the gods. Even the Lord recognizes what the true underlying problem is in this situation. And that's where the judgment is exacted. Notice it says here, then the Egyptians, sorry, go forward to 14, 14, 18. This is talking about the Red Sea situation. Pharaoh goes to chase. The sea comes over them. Then the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. Skip down to verse 24. At the morning watch, Yahweh looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. Pay attention, guys. Yahweh can even inflict psychological warfare on people to mess them up. In fact, there's a lot of situations where you see that when somebody is encamped against Israel, ready to fight them, something that God does is He stirs them up to fight one another, and, and each army ends up killing each other. It's amazing how God works. Everybody's spared on the other side of it as far as Israel's concerned. Verse 25, He caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and He made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel! For Yahweh is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Notice that even they saw where this was coming from. 26 and 27, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over the chariots and over their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak. When the Egyptians were fleeing right into it, then Yahweh overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. 28, The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. 
not even one of them remained. And here's what's amazing, is I don't think the Bible records another peep out of Egypt until 2 Kings sometime. That's how long it took their civilization to recover from what God did to them because of their evil and hard-heartedness. Now, where's the grace on the other side of this? This gives me the chill bumps. Anybody? Goose flesh? Anybody? I love this part. Here we go. Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah 19. I remember when I read this for the first time, my eyeballs almost rolled out of my head. I could not believe it. I thought it was so unjust. And i got to remember that God is a God of grace. There's a lot here in 19. I encourage you to read the entire chapter sometime. But go to verse 19. Think about this. This is the grace on the other side of judgment because of failure. Okay? The responsibility was to bless Israel and not curse them, not treat them lightly. And so God demonstrated what He would do to a Gentile nation should they treat Israel this way. Watch this, verse 19. Chapter 19 of Isaiah, verse 19. In that day, there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt. Now we could just stop right there and go, what? Right? We could. There's going to be an altar. People are going to be bringing sacrifices to the Almighty Creator Yahweh, who is the Father in heaven, the Maker of heaven and earth, the one of which fought against Pharaoh and all the gods. There's actually going to be a place there where people will come to worship Him in the midst of the land of Egypt. It says here, and a pillar of Yahweh near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to the Yahweh of hosts. Everybody see that Yahweh of hosts? This means the heavenly beings. Notice that it's bringing that supernatural element into it. He is the great self-existent one amongst the heavenly beings. Very interesting how that's inserted there. He says it will become a sign and a witness to Yahweh of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to Yahweh because of oppressors. And He will send them a what? A Savior. Everybody feel it? Yeah! A Savior. And not just a Savior. A champion. Man! You ever think of Jesus as a champion? Woo! I don't like to fire your woods wet, man. There it is. And He will deliver. Another word is, He will save them. Verse 21, Thus Yahweh will make Himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to Yahweh and perform it. Yahweh will strike Egypt. Striking, but healing. So they will return to Yahweh and He will respond to them and will heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Everybody remember Assyria? Assyria is where Nimrod went once the Tower of Babel thing happened and he migrated north and ended up creating that. Later on, around 700 30-something, I think. Maybe my math is off on that. 730-something B.C., it was Assyria who was used by God to come in and discipline the northern kingdom, the ten tribes who had broken off from God and said, we're not going to go to the temple and worship. We're kind of doing our own thing. We're going to set up God in the form of a da-da-da-da calf. Ring a bell for anybody? Happened way after the Exodus incident. And yet they hadn't learned a thing from that. Definitely 
demonic influence in that. So notice, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria. Can you believe the grace of God in this? Let's be honest. There's something that me goes, God, that ain't right. That just tells me how much more I need to know Him. And how much the knowledge of how He works with people that would respond in such a way to His children and yet turn around and embrace them and love them and call them His own of what I need to learn implemented in my own life. Good grief, this is humbling. He says here, they will be a blessing in the midst of the earth whom Yahweh of hosts, there it is again, has blessed, saying, blessed is Egypt, my people. Assyria, the work of my hands. Israel, my inheritance. That's a great passage. Gosh, it's a great passage. The fourth dispensation is promised. What's the responsibility? Bless Israel. They're God's chosen people. What's the failure? Pharaoh enslaved, punished, murdered, and tormented the Israelites. Let that serve as a real-life, end-time example for how we think about the nation of Israel. Understand this. What is the judgment? Yahweh confounds and destroys Egypt. But what is grace? Yahweh will redeem Egypt as a nation, calling them my people. So here the question must be asked. Is it possible for people to govern themselves according to that promise that's made? It's impossible. It's impossible. We Pay attention to the news. And when you see conflict in the Middle East, when you hear people talking about the West Bank, when you hear them talking about the Gaza Strip, when you hear them talking about the Golan Heights, listen. If you're on Twitter or whatever it's called now, it's called X, that's dumb, weird. But anyway, get on the Israeli Defense Forces Twitter feed and follow what they're having to deal with and watch the news updates that come up. Check this stuff out. Pay attention. It is not just a world conflict here. It is a over the world, supernatural in the heavenlies conflict that is being warred first before it ever plays itself out now. And it's all culminating in the return of Jesus Christ to set all things right. Get this. All these promises are part and parcel of everything God's going to do in His Son. It's part of His eternal plan. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for being the fulfillment of all that God wants to do. Father, we praise You for making the promises that You alone will keep, that You alone will see through, that help us understand the extents of the end times because You have made these promises from so long ago. Father, maybe we don't grasp the significance of this. I pray, Lord, we would go over this information again. Father, maybe if we have been taught or influenced in some way to not seek to bless Israel, maybe we've never even prayed for Israel as a nation. Maybe we've never even prayed for the peace of Jerusalem. Today's a good day to start. They are your people. They are the markers on the prophetic time clock. They are the ones that you've set forward to set the stage and they are the conduit of blessing to all the nations. 
Heaven forbid that our government would treat them lightly, belittle them, or dismiss them. Because we would be asking for your wrath upon us. We need to take this seriously. Thank you, Lord, that your grace is beyond what I can even understand. And the fact that you will actually call Egypt your people. That Assyria will be the work of your hands. And that Israel is your inheritance. And when it's all said and done in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, they will all be united in worship to you. That is profound. It is absolutely otherworldly, but that's your goal. Your goal is to bring your kingdom here and for it to be ruled perfectly by your Son. Thank you, God, for incredible hope. May we be joyful as we sing. It's in Christ's name. Amen.